0: Well, good morning, everyone. I actually want to start by having you participate in a little bit of a challenge. So I'm going to ask that you start by closing your eyes. Everybody just close your eyes for a moment. With your eyes closed, I'd love you to come up with a picture in your mind of poverty. What's a classic picture of poverty for you? Once that picture is crystal clear in your mind, you can open up your eyes again. Okay, I'd like to even explore a little bit further the pictures that you came up with. So if you're comfortable with it, take a moment and have a quick chat with the person on either side of you. Explore the picture they came up with. Talk a little bit about the picture you came up with. And we'll just see if there was any similarities or differences. Go for it. Okay, I'm going to have you start to bring your conversations to an end so we can keep things going. Great work. Obviously, I didn't have the opportunity to hear from everybody uh, what it was, the, the actual picture you came up with. But I bet that a lot of the pictures that people came up with were pretty close to a few of these. For me, these would be some classic pictures of poverty. Starving children... People living in deplorable conditions, faces of sickness and neglect and hopelessness. And that makes sense, right? Because we know that one element of poverty is being on the extreme side of not having enough. But I want to offer you a few more pictures to consider. Take a look at some of these. My hunch is that these weren't the first pictures that came to mind for you. Yet I'm starting to realize that there's another side of poverty. And that's the poverty of excess. Or being on the extreme side of having too much. A few years ago, I heard Wes Stafford. He was then the president of Compassion International. And he was talking about this idea of enough. He said that often people assume that poverty, or the opposite of poverty, is moving from one extreme to the other, from going from not having anything to movement of having wealth and excess. But he suggested that that was a wrong assumption. West went on to explain that he believed that the opposite of poverty was actually moving to enough. He explained that, when we get too far on either side, extreme ends, we're susceptible to more and more realities of poverty, although they're unique poverty. His big idea that day was the world will get rid of poverty when on both sides we move towards enough. Now, he wasn't talking about a communist system where everyone was forced to have the same things. He was actually talking about a world where people over here, people with more than enough, gladly choose to let go of what they have, or at least some of it, so folks over here can have what they need. And we both move to enough. Now this morning as we kick off this Hope Lives series, I want to challenge you that the biggest way that you can become a difference maker, to actually stop the realities of pictures like this, is to start by challenging your own mindset about how much is enough. Once you do that, and once you invite God to let you even redefine what enough is, everything will start to change. You know, ever since that day I heard Wes talk, I thought about poverty differently, and I realized that he was on to something. Actually, it resulted in me challenging a bunch of other assumptions I had about poverty as well. Like the idea that everybody over here on the extreme side of not having enough is generally hopeless and unhappy, and the more that you move towards this end, every step of the way, the more you gain happiness and contentment and joy. And although there's some truth to that, certainly if you're extremely on this side and you don't have enough to keep you safe and healthy and protected and even nourished, you're going to leave in you're going to live in some extreme side of hopelessness. But I found for me that. It was an overall incomplete assumption. You see, in the last number of years, I've had the chance to travel to the developing world, quite a few countries, places like Ecuador and Uganda and India, places where generally people live day to day with much less than what we consider enough in Canada. And yet, I've encountered and spent time with some of the most loving, caring, joy-filled, Christ-centered people I've ever met. At the same time, I know lots of people who certainly live on this end. They have, in some ways, a life that looks to have it all, and yet it's not uncommon to find people unhappy, anxious, depressed, kind of just going through the motions, wondering, is this as good as it gets? In the past few years, I've found that my picture of poverty is changing. I still hold on to pictures over here, pictures of the poor and the neglected but I'm adding to these pictures like this. Pictures of excess, pictures of extravagance, of too much. I'm understanding a little bit more why the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8, give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me enough, just enough to satisfy my needs. Well, let's start with trying to get a better understanding of just who is on each side. So I'm gonna do my best to bring this to life with a little bit of a visual. So what I'm gonna say is that this group over here, this table, is representative of the world's 20% of the wealthiest people. The 20% of the world's wealthiest over here. Over here is the 20% of the world's poorest people. What that means is right here in between and even this table behind me, this would represent the 60% of the middle class the folks who kind of are living in between the extreme have and have-nots. So what I want to do is look at how this shakes down in terms of where the resources and where the opportunities go. Let's start with examples of food consumption. I found that 50% of all quality food consumed goes to the top 20% of wage earners in the world. What that means is that out of 10 cereal boxes, five of them go just to this group, the top 20%. I also found that 40% of the world's quality food, things like meat and fish and cheese and grape produce, it goes to this 60% in the middle, which means that 10% or one out of 10 cereal boxes get to this group down here, the world's 20% of the poorest. Well, let's keep going. I want to look at energy use. So for energy use, I've got light bulbs. What I found was that 58% of the world's energy is used by this group up here, the world's richest 20%. So I've got six boxes of light bulbs that they've just earned. I've also found out that 38% of the world's energy is utilized by this 60% of our world's population in the middle. So they get four boxes. And actually only 4% of the world's energy is utilized by the poorest 20%. So they don't even qualify for one. Okay, I'm going to get into communications. I've got some some iPhones here. What this represents is the world's internet and phone lines. And I found out that 76% of the world's internet and phone lines are used or allocated to this top 20% of income earners. That means they get two, four, six, eight out of the 10 of these iPhones. 24% of the world's phone and internet lines go to this group in the middle, the 60% of the middle class. And only 2% of the world's phone and internet lines actually go to the poorest 20%, so they don't qualify for any. Okay, a few more. I'm gonna look at paper products. What this means is all of the world's books, print resources, paper materials. It turns out that 84%. So 8 out of 10 paper products go to the top 20% of income earners. We're starting to run out of space here. Turns out that 15% go to the group in the middle. So 60% of the population uses 15% of the world's paper products. And only 1% of the print resources and books get into the hands of the poorest 20%. So unfortunately, they don't qualify for any. One more thing, we're going to look at vehicles and transportation. What I found was that 87% of the world's motorized vehicle fleet actually goes to the top 20% of income earners. So they get nine, they get nine of these vehicles. It turns out that um, most of these vehicles are dump trucks too, and I'm not quite sure why that is, but we'll put them up there anyways. Starting to run out of space here. I'll do my best, nine out of ten vehicles. It also turns out that, I've got one more right here. 12% 12% of the world's motorized vehicles get to this group in the middle. So they get 1 out of 10. And only 1% of the world's motorized vehicles are actually owned by the poorest 20%. It's an interesting observation. It doesn't take long to look at this group really doesn't have a lot to work with. They're, they're crippled and they're trapped by the poverty of not having enough The lives that God created them to live of purpose and promise is robbed from them, often due to circumstances and situations that are totally outside of their control. These probably were the folks that you were thinking of when you came up with a picture of poverty in your mind. This would be the billion people in the world that live on less than one Canadian dollar a day. What about these folks over here, the top 20%? Who are these people? Looks like they have it all. We well, may be surprised you actually may even be discouraged that you asked that question. Cuz you see in 2011, Stats Canada reported that the average Canadian income was $42,000. If you take that amount and type it into the website www.globalrichlist.com, you'll find that it actually puts you in the top 1% of the wealthiest people in the world. What that means is if you made $42,000 last year, you'd be in the top 1% of the world's wealthy. That means you're not only in this group, you're actually almost at the top. Interestingly enough, the poverty line in Ontario was set right around $19,000. And yet if we took that amount and put it into Global Rich List, you'd still find that it would put you in the ninety-second percent of the world's richest people still in this group. So this group over here, this group that seems to have it all, it's us. It's you and me. It kind of gives you perspective on how half of the world lives on approximately two Canadian dollars a day. And let me tell you why I believe this matters. Because there's a lot of definitions of poverty, but one that I believe is a key definition is poverty equals hopelessness. And I don't think it takes much to understand how the devil would use the poverty of not enough as one of his greatest tools to keep people down here from experiencing God's promises, the the idea of a life of peace and joy and purpose. He uses the poverty to rob them of their health, their dignity, and probably worst of all, their hope. But I believe that God would want us to pay attention to this because the devil is just as active over here. Folks like us, folks that can get caught up in the poverty of too much. The Bible speaks of this poverty, or this kind of poverty, over and over again. Probably best brought to life in the book of Matthew, chapter 19. It said, Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it's very hard for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven. I'll say it again. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now, I'm not a farmer. I don't know a lot about camels. I wouldn't even be able to sew a button on my pants. But even knowing that little, I can tell you that that's not good news. Especially knowing that the ones Jesus was talking to, it was us. And he was clear that this stuff and holding on to all of this stuff is the very thing that can stop us from entering into God's kingdom. From experiencing a life of peace and joy and purpose and a relationship with God. Living over here can be just as hopeless as living over here. And I guess this shouldn't be shocking to me. You see, before working at Southridge, I was a management consultant. And what that meant was I worked with approximately 50 or more organizations every year, most of which were Fortune 500 companies. And this gave me the opportunity to spend quite a bit of time with senior executives, folks who lived in million-dollar mansions, lived a lifestyle of extravagant travel and entertainment and non-stop parties. And yet, it wasn't uncommon for me to spend time with one of these people one-on-one and very quickly hear how unhappy they truly were. How the pressure and the pace that they lived at was resulting in a state of stress and anxiety. And, excuse me, how the trade-off for the crazy work hours and the messed up priorities was actually resulting in broken marriages, an estranged relationship with their kids, and deteriorating health. I remember a conversation I had with one person. She told me that her life felt like it was just on a non-stop treadmill going nowhere. That to everyone around her, it looked like she had it all, but inside, she felt like she lived in a constant state of hopelessness. I asked her, so why don't you just get off the treadmill? Why don't you change things up, live with less, simplify your life, do something you love? She said she loved the idea of that, Anne knew she'd never do it. She felt trapped. And the only option she had was to go faster, to do more, and to keep treading on. She felt hopeless. It reminded me of other conversations I've had. You see, in the last number of years, I have a lot of friends who unfortunately deal with very awful drug addictions. And when you talk to these people, it's obvious that they hate the drug. They hate the lifestyle it forces them to live. And they would desperately love to be free of the chains of addiction. But in spite of this, they can't let it go. Even with the opportunity of help and support around them, they'll often give up their health, their family, their friends, even their dignity to go after something they don't even want, something they know that's killing them. They're trapped. It defies all logic and reason. Talking to my executive friend that day felt like I was having the exact same conversation. She was giving up everything that really mattered in life, her family, her friends, her health, even her faith, for something that wasn't even bringing her joy. And she knew it. It was hopeless. So how can this be? How can having good things, being blessed with things, actually start to work against us? Well, I'm going to do an exercise that hopefully will bring it to life a little bit. In a moment, I'm going to count to three. And when I do, I'd like you to inhale and hold it for as long as you possibly can. Okay, inhale as long as you can on three. One, two, three, inhale. Keep holding it. Keep holding it. Okay, you can exhale now. I don't want to lose anybody. I've got a few more things to say. I think you get the idea. Even something as good as inhaling, it brings us this gift of oxygen. It's only good when it's in check with exhaling. And if we decide to live in one extreme, the thing that was actually working for us works against us. We end up blue in the face. There's tons of other situations in life that I think are just like breathing. If we end up on one extreme or the other, We get into trouble. We end up blue in the face, so to speak, in life. I believe that the exact same phenomenon is true with the idea of giving and receiving. You see, when we live over here, we become very susceptible to being in overdone receiving mode. We get and we get and we get and we get more and all of a sudden, somehow, the very things that used to bring us happiness and contentment start to work against us. We actually find that there's a a sense of discontent and a constant craving for more. We somehow lose our sense of gratitude and appreciation and along the way we slowly close our eyes to the needs of others around us. Our sense of happiness becomes more and more linked to having stuff and making sure that our life holds up well to Facebook pictures, making sure we get lots of likes and comments. But you know what? Just like a A drug fix, that happiness never lasts. And as a result, we just keep on consuming and traveling and redecorating and upgrading and building because it's never enough. I saw this idea of being blue in the face, so to speak, from overdone getting or receiving brought to life not too long ago around Christmas. I was at an event and we were at a Christmas tree with more Christmas presents than you could imagine. And things started out well. People were smiling and thanking each other, but suddenly something started to change. All of a sudden, there were arguments over who was unwrapping next, and kids were fighting about who got to touch what and who got to play with what. Actually, comments were made about, well, that wasn't exactly what I asked for. Within no time, if there were any thank yous, they were robotic. They didn't come with eye contact. We actually had to shut things down halfway through and have a timeout because the kids' behavior was so not acceptable. And at that point, things had already come to tears. Becky and I left that day feeling awful, just feeling a sense of shame that we actually were part of such an example of excess. Contrast to that, an experience I had two weeks later. I was in Lima, Peru, and I was traveling with a group of people who all sponsored children living in extreme poverty, and this day, we were actually going to have the opportunity to meet our sponsored child face to face. Well, the couple beside me had a backpack, and they filled it with toys and, and school supplies to give to the girl that they sponsored. Very soon after meeting her, they pulled out the backpack and gave it to her, and what I saw next, I will never, ever forget. She took the backpack and put it down and she looked at them and she attacked them with the biggest hug I have ever seen and she wouldn't let go. She just kept hugging them for everything she was worth and she kept saying in her language, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Well, Within no time, she was crying and they were bawling and I'm just watching this and I'm starting to cry and then all of a sudden something hit me. Although it had to be obvious that this bag was full of stuff, she never opened it. She didn't even know what she was given. All that mattered to her was that someone cared enough to give her something. That was all that mattered. And as a result, she just could not let herself let go of that hug. I remember on the ride back, thinking about how that experience contrasted to the Christmas experience I had only two weeks earlier, and I was haunted by how messed up we can be back home. Just asking myself, who really is living in poverty here? The crazy thing is that there actually is a solution to breaking the chains of the poverty of too much and the poverty of not enough. We break our chains of poverty when we allow God to use us to help these folks break their chains of poverty. See the awesome connection? I remember when Wes, when Wes Stafford was talking, he was teaching on this idea of enough. And he went on to say that there's nothing better than when, when you choose to live with less so others can move towards Enough. And although I didn't totally understand him, something in my heart leapt out of my chest because I knew he was speaking a profound truth. There's nothing better than what you experience when you start to let go of what you have so others can get to enough. But if letting go of our stuff, if somehow getting out of the trap of materialism, freeing up our time and our agenda, even opening up our friendship circle... If this can be as challenging as beating a deadly drug addiction, how on earth do we let this happen? Well, I have a suggestion. Actually, Jesus had a suggestion. You see, he was asked a similar question. In the book of Luke, someone came to Jesus and he said, Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? He was asking, Jesus, what can I do to avoid being caught in the traps and pitfalls of the world around me? And experience a life with you. And what was interesting was Jesus' response wasn't a specific list of things to do. Or a percentage of what he had to give away. Actually, Jesus responded with a story. A story that I imagine a lot of people in here are familiar with. It's a story of the Good Samaritan. Jesus started by saying, You must love the Lord God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength and all your mind, and you must love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and live. He was saying, if you want to experience the promises of God, to break free from the poverty of traps and the, the materialism around you, love me with everything you've got, and love your neighbor, really love your neighbor, do that, and it all works out. But the man wasn't satisfied. He didn't believe that Jesus was clear enough for him. He pushed him to be more specific. He wanted a checklist, something black and white. He wanted to know, who is my neighbor? So when the man asked Jesus, be clear with me, who's my neighbor? Jesus generally just continued with his story. He said a Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, and when he saw the man lying there, he actually crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looking at him, lying there, but he also passed by to the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he had compassion for him. Going over to the man, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. And he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandits, Jesus said. And the man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. What was Jesus' instruction on how we can escape the traps and the pitfalls of the world and experience a life of eternal life of God's hope living in and through us? Become a good Samaritan. Jesus said, do this and live, really live, a life of purpose and promise and adventure. So what does that mean? How do we become a good Samaritan? What does it look like? Well, that's generally what we're going to spend the entire month of October unpacking. We're going to, through God's grace over the next four weeks, work and pray that God moves all of us forward in becoming good Samaritans. We're going to look at how it was possible for a priest, someone like Mike Krause, to actually look at the dying man and deliberately decide to go to the other side of the road to close his eyes to pictures like this. We're going to look at how the temple assistant or a a church volunteer could actually walk by the same scene, even get a little closer and see the the reality of the situation, and still decide to, to move over and keep moving forward, coming up with tons of reasons and excuses and rationale why he couldn't or shouldn't help. But we're also going to dig into the significance of the Samaritan how he decided to actually get closer and give up everything he had to help this person in need. And without giving the entire month away, I'd love to just camp out on one key point. It says that the priest and the temple assistant walked by. They chose to physically and emotionally distance themselves from the needs around them. But the Samaritan deliberately chose to get closer, to look at the man, and then... He had compassion for him. This is huge. The Samaritan had the the courage to get closer to the need, not to move further away. And when he did, he truly saw the man. He looked into his eyes and he saw the reality of his pain and he was moved with compassion. And once he had compassion on the man, he saw him as his neighbor. He valued him. And that compassion was real. So of course he was going to do whatever it took. Of course he was going to kind of forego the trip that he was on and give up his time and his possessions and his money and even his safety to do whatever it took to help this man, his friend, in need. Choosing to look at the need, the poor and the marginalized, the people that most of society wants to distance themselves from, to see and actually get closer, spend time with these people, this is what what allows God to fill our hearts with compassion. And it's this compassion that becomes the fuel to give us the boldness and the courage and the perseverance to do whatever it takes. Real compassion breaks the addictive level chains of North American poverty. It even takes us to a place where we're not just willing to let go of what we have, we're excited to do whatever it takes so that folks over here can get closer to having enough, to have life, to have hope, and watch what happens when we become a good Samaritan, how God starts to change and break the unique forms of poverty that we experience. This last week was a pretty significant one for me. You see, one week ago today, I turned 40 years old. Now, I don't think I'm experiencing a midlife crisis. I haven't been out shopping for sports cars. I have not uh, even considered getting frosted tips. But I'd be lying if I didn't admit that turning 40 has made me reflect on my life a lot. And even coming up with this message and working on this entire Hope Lives series, I'm finding myself constantly asking the question, how close am I to being a good Samaritan? I'm certainly somebody who lives over here. I live in a beautiful new house. Our family has two cars. We live well. We travel on vacations once or twice a year. We're the rich people Jesus was talking about. If God was to give a pop quiz right now and grade my life in terms of how well it stood up next to the story of the Good Samaritan, how well would I do? What character would I actually resemble the most? With the traps and the deception that come from the poverty of having too much blind me to the needs around me so that in the end I turn up responding like the priest or the temple assistant, choosing to distance myself from the situation and coming up with tons of excuses as to why I can't help or even why I shouldn't help. Or would in some way my life reflect the life of the good Samaritan? Someone who's choosing to continually live with less so others can have what they need to live. To have hope. To experience God's purpose for their life. I said earlier that in the Bible, Jesus said that it was easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. But Jesus didn't end there. He actually offered a message of hope. He went on to say, just a little bit later in verse 26... Humanly speaking, it's impossible, but with God, everything is possible. And there's some incredible signs of hope around this community these days too. You see, God is breaking the chains of the poverty of too much, more and more and more in our community. And he's doing amazing things in and through people and painting brand new pictures that are just the total opposite of the pictures we started the day by thinking about. He's raising up more and more people that are choosing to look at the needs around them. And instead of moving away or coming up with excuses on why they can't help, they're choosing to get closer, stepping up to make a difference. They're going beyond attending occasional fundraisers or liking the cause of the day on Facebook. And instead they're becoming hometown missionaries, good Samaritans right here in our midst, folks who are changing their paradigm of what enough is. And with hearts full of compassion, they're joyfully choosing to live with less so others in need can move towards having enough. We're seeing more and more examples of the poverty of not enough and the poverty of too much being obliterated as God's radically changing the way we think and we all move closer to enough. And I believe that's God's plan for each of you. He wants to see you joyfully loosen your grip on all of this. Not only your stuff, your agenda, even some of your priorities, even the boundaries on your friendship circle. He wants you to have less and less security and even trust in those things and more and more trust and hope and security in him. He wants to see you come alive in a beautifully uncomfortable way. He wants to see you reach out to those in needs, not only needs here in Niagara, but right across in the developing world, to the poorest of the poor. And in doing so, his plan is to paint some new pictures, pictures that only your life can paint, pictures of the chains of poverty being broken now and forever. How awesome is that? Let's pray. Jesus, let's start by just being clear on how thankful we are for all of the ways that you've blessed us. We are blessed beyond measure, God, truly blessed beyond measure. And we thank you for that. I pray, God, that none of us would take it for granted. And, God, we'd also realize, maybe even today in a more clear way, that the very things that you bless us with, if we hold on to them and keep them for ourselves, can actually hurt our relationship with you. And, God, I don't want us all responding out of guilt or duty, but God, I pray that today you would start redefining in our hearts what enough is, so that God, all of us just in an excited way want to loosen our grip on our stuff and become good Samaritans, people who do whatever they can, give up whatever they need to give up so others in need can move closer to having enough. And God, I pray that today would be the start of just an incredible movement This month, God, we would see more and more examples of Good Samaritan stories being birthed. God, I pray that you'd paint that picture for everyone, the unique way they want. You want them to become a Good Samaritan. And God, I thank you for the pictures that we've just recently showed, and I praise you in advance, God, for the work that you are about to do in the days and the month and the years to come. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.